Thank you so much for praying together. I hope that you will be encouraged by the fellowship of one another and the comfort that we find in one another. Uh, and if you have a Bible, we're going to open up the first Samuel chapter 1 after many, many uh, years, really. Um, these uh, Bible studies we've been doing on Wednesday evenings and previously Sunday evenings, we stuck or stayed around in the New Testament. Uh, we'll be back, of course, into the New Testament. We spend most of our Sunday mornings in the New Testament. Um, uh, but for a little while, we're going to be studying the Old Testament, particularly um, first Samuel. So I want to kind of set the table for us what you should expect over the next couple of months. And, and really the next couple of years. Uh, tonight, we're going to set out on what will end up being a multi-year journey. I can't tell you how long this is going to take because I, I just don't know yet, but I've, I've mapped it out the best I can. Um, this is going to be about the story of ancient Israel as an ancient organized nation. Um, uh, obviously, Israel's history goes back all the way to the very beginning of the Bible. It starts with Abraham. It goes on with Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And we've talked about those stories extensively. We study them a lot, even on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're studying uh, Genesis now on Sunday evening, so you are getting a little bit of that foundation laid through Noah's story, and of course that leads to Abraham. Um, and we've talked about Exodus and the conquest of the land, how uh, the tribal period uh, under the under the rule of judges. Um, but but God's plan all along was for Israel to be a, un, a united nation where the twelve tribes functioned uh, as one under one government under His rule. So while the building blocks can be found in earlier biblical stories, First Samuel is when the story really gets rolling and where the kingdom really starts to build. So what we're going to do over the next several years, and don't worry, there's going to be breaks in between. We won't stay in, in this uh, section of the Bible just uh, without a little bit of a break here and there. But for the next several years, uh, we're going to be studying 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, and we're going to try to thread them all together and learn the story that God is telling from the beginning to the end, uh, the story of the beginning of Israel as a nation, as a kingdom, and ultimately the end of Israel as the kingdom that God made it to be. So we're going to look at it from beginning to end. Again, it's going to take a while. Um, uh, in between each book, we'll do some shorter New Testament studies. Um, the, the, the small, you know, we've, we've covered Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. The rest of Paul's letters are very short. We could cover them in a month's time uh, or, or, or a few, six, you know, five, six weeks. So in between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we'll probably go into Galatians and, and so forth and so on. Um, but eventually, um, our, the outline of, of studying these four books will look something like this. We're going to do a study called the Rising Kingdom in 1 Samuel, the United Kingdom in 2 Samuel. Then we'll study about the thriving kingdom, which is a very short-lived period of time, the first half of First Kings, and then we'll eventually study about the divided kingdom and the rest of First Kings and the fallen kingdom in Second Kings. So as you can already tell, it, it, it builds to something great, and then it begins to fall apart after that. But there's a lot of great lessons, uh, a lot of amazing lessons on every page of these four books. And they're very long, they're very, they're very thorough, they're very dense. So it'll take us a long time to get through them all. And uh, again, we'll study some other things along the way. But I just wanted to kind of give you an idea that we're building towards something. We're starting now, um, as the title of the message for today is, In Humble Beginnings. Uh, and then we'll eventually see how this humble beginning leads to something pretty spectacular that would go on to change the world. Uh, again, I want to be clear, though, 
the kingdom of Israel was always pointing towards a much greater kingdom. Um, the, the, the kingdom of Israel, um, Israel as a nation still exists and always will exist, but the kingdom of Israel had a very uh, a short, short-lived uh, uh, existence. Um, from the story in 1 Samuel to the end of 2 Kings, now Israel came back after it was fallen and after it was conquered, but never like it was during these four books. In these four books, the kingdom that God built then was pointing towards something that would come much later and would never come to an end. Jesus said someone much greater than Solomon has come. And of course, he referred to himself. He also said that King David looked forward to a day when he would bow to throne higher than his and give praise to a king greater than himself. So we are, as we read these stories, I want you to know that the story of ancient Israel was always meant to, always meant to preview and point to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that has been established through the church, but one day be not just a spiritual kingdom as it is now, but a physical, literal, dominating kingdom over all of creation that will one day rule on this earth and will take us into everlasting eternity. So today it's opt-in. You don't have to be a part of the kingdom of God right now, but if you are going to live forever, you're going to live in the kingdom of God. Otherwise, there is not going to be any living. There'll just be eternal death. So now you can opt-in, but in the future, that's all there's going to be. And, and thankfully, we get a chance to opt in now and be a part of it later. Uh, the work that God did through Israel shows us the work he desires to do throughout the whole world and will one day do in full. So while there, uh, there are a lot of these stories we're going to read, um, there are people, places, and certain uh, uh, events that really pertain to a world that is really long since past. Um, the values and the principles at play in these ancient documents and the ancient narratives, these are historical accounts that you can rely on. Uh, the, the, the ancient, uh, the values and principles are still the nuts and bolts on how God builds a kingdom and operates a kingdom. And while there's things different about the world then uh, as compared to the world now, we're going to learn tonight that things aren't that different um, and, and what the people of God did to endure their world is how we can endure ours and help build a kingdom in a world that maybe doesn't always cooperate with God. Um, uh, the one thing I love especially uh, about how 1 Samuel opens up is there is no established kingdom. So literally there's nothing going going the way it was supposed to go when we open this story up. We get to see God build it from the ground up. Um, of course, you know uh, the, the backstory. Moses led the Hebrews out of, the, out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. A two-week trip turns into a 40-year slog. Two weeks, can you imagine? Two weeks of traveling turned into 40 years of traveling. An entire generation had to die off because they were so rebellious and so stubborn. Uh, finally, Joshua leads the next generation into the promised land, and he tried to get them to keep their eyes on the prize, but they struggled even after they got possession of the land. He encouraged them to unite together as tribes and seek and serve God as their king. And, and, and this wasn't some abstract concept. Moses had really set them up to be a nation governed by law, ruled by God, a united nation. In Deuteronomy 33, before Moses died, Moses uh, kind of coronated them and had a ceremony for them as a nation. Deuteronomy 33, Moses sums up 
God's plan for Israel. He loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. They followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. So God's talking about God, and then he's talking to God. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. So what was the nation going to be? It was going to be a nation called by God, created by God, governed by law. A nation that was united together, governed by a single shared law, as in God had set a rule in place that was going to keep them united and keep them holy and keep them um, on the right and good path. And it says that thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered all the tribes of Israel together. So Moses gave, set them up for success. He says, hey, he said, guys, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm about to die. I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. Um, Joshua's your guy. We talked about this Sunday. Um, but if you guys are going to get this right, you're going to have to remember that God's law is good for you. God's law is going to govern you and guide you. But God is your king. You are not your own king. You don't need some lesser man to be your king. You must know God is your king. And they had this ceremony where they kind of symbolically acknowledged God was the only king they needed. And God would be all that they could ever ask for as a king, as a leader, as a guide. Uh, he was a father unto Israel. And, and they had this, they had this brand new standard to show the world how a nation can be successful and how a nation can be prosperous and how a people can be um, can, can, can live the way they ought to live. But, but even after they received this model, uh, and Joshua repeated it again and again and again, at the end of the day, or after they settled the land, they decided, you know what, we'd rather just stick to ourselves. We'd rather just go in our own little corner and be in our own tribes. We don't want to have to try to get along. Let's just be in our own tribes. Let's make our own laws. Let's just do what's right for us, and you do what's right for you. You know, Judah will do this, and Benjamin will do that, and, and Dan will do this, and Asher that, and Naphtali. We'll just all go to our own little corners. We'll all just kind of hide out in our own little part of the, uh, of the country, and, and we'll just govern ourselves. And of course, that did not work out at all. Of course, they should have known that. God tried to tell them that. Um, and that's why all throughout the book of Judges, when they're trying to just fend for themselves and God's raising up these warriors to, to help the individual tribes, we, we hear this refrain that's repeated throughout the book of Judges, uh, that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, they had a king. His name was Yahweh. His name was God. He was over them, but they did acknowledge that. And they all just did what was right in their own eyes. And when you do what's right in your own eyes, you eventually lose an eye or two. So God looked down from heaven and knew that, God, that Israel needed a central figure to steer them in the right direction, to bring them back to him. They had Moses. They had Joshua. They needed a leader like that again. And really, they needed different kinds of leaders. So 1 Samuel, and on throughout these, these studies, is not just about a single leader. It's about several different leaders that God raises up and how they need more than just a king. Of course, they're going to get one, but they need priests. They need prophets. That they need a king to lead them as a nation. They need priests to intercede for them spiritually. And they need prophets to speak to them the things and the words and the thoughts of God. And, and we're going to see different men ra be raised up to fill these specific roles that all serve a key uh, role in, in leading Israel. We'll rarely see, and really we never see, these offices overlap. Uh, every once in a while a king will prophesy, every once in a while a priest will prophesy, but you re and you, you'll see a prophet um, uh, sacrifice an animal, but, 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 but rarely were they in the same office. 
but, it, but for God's kingdom to be, to be established and united and thriving, it would take all three of these serving alongside each other. Now, to kind of give you a peek into the future, the future that we're now living in, um, our current reality uh, in the better kingdom of God, in the spiritual kingdom of God that's building towards a eternal kingdom of God, um, these three roles are still essential for us, yet we don't have a king and then a priest and a prophet, three different people or three different offices that we look to. We have one king, we have one priest and one prophet. Jesus is all three of these things. Jesus came as God's final king, the ultimate priest, and the definitive prophet. Jesus is the only king we'll ever need. He did the, he did the ultimate sacrifice to save all of us from our sins, and he gave us the definitive words of God, and he closed the book on what is true and what is not true, what is revealed from God and what isn't from God. So this is why the kingdom he's built and is building is an eternal one, and while the old one was just temporary, but the old one was pointing towards something greater. So as we study these old stories, we're going to see Jesus portrayed and Jesus previewed and promised through these individuals and through these stories. So that's why we can learn a lot from these Old Testament narratives. Now, nonetheless, we, we can learn a lot and we can see Jesus in these old stories. We should look to him for guidance and lean on him in every way by studying how God leveraged the men who served in the ancient world, uh, we can see what he's wanting to do here and now. So 1 Samuel opens up by actually introducing us to one of the people that God would use deeply to impact Israel and how God begins to unite his people uh, under his rule and reign through uh, an individual. And that person, of course, is Samuel. That's who the book's named after. Um, he really is going to serve as the main focus of the early chapters of this book. And his legacy and his shadow casts over many, many, many future generations. There, you're going to be hearing about Samuel uh, throughout the whole, whole set of these books because he's, he's got a great, uh, has a great impact on his on his world. Uh, while we're introduced to Samuel in the first chapter, the chapter doesn't begin with Samuel. Samuel's not even alive yet. Uh, the chapter begins by introducing us to a family that underscores the spiritual condition of Israel, the, the spiritual poverty of Israel, and it's going to emphasize how dire Israel was spiritually and how in need they were for leadership and guidance. But it's from these humble hollow, fragile beginnings that God begins building his kingdom one person at a time. And listen, without any other details, that point should resonate with us and should encourage you. That's still how God operates today. He wades into the mire. He wades into the mud. He gets into the mess and he begins mending and changing hearts one at a time. There's a lot of hyperbolic things, and hyperbolic means exaggerated things, kind of panicky things. There's a lot of hyperbolic things that are said about our current generation. And, and by no means, I'm not dismissing how sinful the world is. It's, it's bad. There's a lot of things that are not as they should be, and maybe you think they're worse than they used to be. There's a lot of things that are said about our current generation, about how hopeless it is, how bleak the future is. I, I don't think, though, and you may disagree, but I think I'll, I'll convince you, I don't think that we could even imagine the deflation and the despondency that was in the air some 3,000 years ago in ancient Israel. As bad as we think it is right now, if we were to go back 3,000 years and read the room and check the temperature of 
spiritually of ancient Israel about 3,200 years ago, I think we would say it was worse considering. If you read the book of Judges, you, you've, you know this. Israel devolved into a terrible, terrible place. All throughout Judges, we're, we're, there's this kind of underlying message. The family unit is broken. The, the nation falls apart because the family falls apart first. That's usually how things work. But all throughout Judges, we read about things like polygamy, incest, even homosexuality. They're normalized. They're normalized. And at the end of the book of Judges, the nation is walking on eggshells because they think God isn't going to tolerate us much longer. In Judges 19, the people say such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Now, if you've ever read Leviticus, and maybe you do this every night, it, it would encourage you if you did, and, and I'm not making fun of the book, it's just kind of a slog. There's, there, there's entire chapters of Leviticus where God just tells them not to do things the way it was done in Egypt. Chapter 18, for instance, chapter 19, for instance, there's, cha there's, there's verse after verse about what is immoral. And he goes down the list, and, it, and it, you read those chapters, and you think, well, this is just common sense. I mean, incest, that's, that's wrong. Polygamy, as in having multiple wives or multiple husbands, that's, that's wrong. Uh, you know, uh, 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 things like homosexuality, things like, you know, things uh, like gender dysphoria, you know, doing things that are not right for you as the person you were born to be. I mean, we read those chapters, and we think, well, this is obviously wrong. But that was stuff that was going on in Egypt that was normal. But by the end of Judges, they had completely disregarded the moral code that God had given them. And the people of Israel are thinking, this is, we, God is not going to let this go on. Now, on top of that, there's civil war, there's idolatry, there's corruption. The, 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 the priesthood is corrupt. So these first three or four chapters of 1 Samuel are eye-opening in a lot of ways. And maybe they'll do more than restore, maybe what they'll do more than anything is restore our hope. Because if God was able to turn this mess around and redeem it before, then we shouldn't give up on our generation either. Listen, I'm not trying to, to, to again, I'm not trying to make you think, well, things aren't that bad. I'm trying to make us realize, yes, the world is a mess. It's, it's been a mess before. And it's been a mess for a long time. It's really always been a mess but if you want to know how low it can go, read the book of Judges, and that's the scene that 1 Samuel opens up to. And it's because of one particular person in chapter 1 in this corrupt generation that the hope of Israel, the future of Israel, turns for the better. The hope is restored. And we're going to learn from her how to respond to our less than ideal surroundings. So listen, if you're not happy with the way the world is and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be content with how sinful things are, how broken things are, how corrupt things are. Why would you be? You're a, you're a child of God. You know there's better options. You know there's a better way. So if you are like this person and you look around and think, I'm not happy with this. I don't think this should be how it should be. I don't think this is how it should be. Then this chapter is gonna help you respond to these unideal, uh, less than ideal surroundings. And it's gonna help you endure in spite of the poor circumstances that come upon us in a world that is not on our side. So, let's meet the woman who's going to be the star of the story. But we meet the woman in the middle of, of, of let's, just, let's just say, quite a messy family. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, 
And that's near Judah, that's near Bethlehem, that's near Jerusalem, to give you context. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. If you want to know how good things were, how, how, if you want to know how, how things were going in the days of 1 Samuel, the story opens up with a man who, this isn't someone who was married and got remarried because his wife died. This is a man who's got two at the same time. So if you think, man, they must have been really moral and upstanding back in the day. Maybe, maybe this should tell you a different story. And, and again, that's not to make light of it. That's just to show you they were kind of in a bad place. So this man had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was uh, Peninnah. Peninnah and had children, but Hannah had no children, which there is a little bit of context for why he had two wives. So first we're informed the moral standards were completely collapsed and replaced in these days. Most likely, Elkanah took on a second wife because Hannah, his first wife, was barren. Now let me just, let me step in. People read the Old Testament and they think, well, that's just how it was back then. You show me a verse in the Bible where God said that was okay. There's not one. Just because that's how it was, and we, we, we wrestle with this. Well, Abraham had two wives. Abraham had multiple, more than two wives. If you read the whole story, he gets married again and again and again. I mean, well, Jacob had two wives plus two mistresses. I mean, well, they did. I guess it was just how it was back then. That's never was, that's not how it was supposed to be. Genesis 2 says there's a man and a woman, and that's it. It wasn't supposed to be this, this incestuous, this, this, this you know, uh, polygamy, adulterous mess. So I, I, don't, I think we should make, make it clear that, yeah, that's how it was, but that wasn't how it was supposed to be. So Elkanah took on a second wife because Hannah, his first wife, was barren. Now, that was acceptable conduct in these days. But it doesn't mean it should be acceptable. It should have been acceptable. Here's the thing. We read of many people in the Old Testament who were barren, even New Testament, who were barren. Uh, but we also read of people like the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we don't see Zechariah marrying someone else because his wife was barren, do we? Because the difference there is they prayed and they patiently waited for God to do something and to change something. So there's a, di there, there's a difference in these stories. Praying and waiting was not a fashionable thing in those days, and it isn't in today's world either, is it? Uh, social expectations and pressure were different, so we don't know why Elkanah did what he did. Clearly, he wasn't driven by the Bible or wasn't guided by God's word. Many will make excuses for men in these days. Oh, they did what they had to do, uh, you know, but, but just like we make excuses for ourselves in these days, sin is sin. There's really nothing you can do about it. Adultery is unacceptable, even for good reasons, as it was alleged to be in these days. Now, here's the thing. Elkanah and men like him had their reputation on the line. If they couldn't have children, it, was, it looked bad on them. It, it was an ego thing, and maybe it was an economic thing, because you've got to have kids to help work on the land. Uh, women also were treated as replaceable, as commodities. So Elkanah said, well, hey, I don't have anything to worry about. I can't have kids with this wife. I'll just add another. And if I can't have kids with her, I'll just add another. That's just how it was in those days. And again, that should never have been the way it was, but that's the way things were. So if there's things in the world today that you think, how did, it happen? how did this happen? How did this become acceptable? Just like this became acceptable. It wasn't right then. It's not right now. 
Now, I want to read on verses 3 through 8, and there's a whole lot going on in in this story as we read. This man went up from uh, his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. Well, yeah, he was married twice, but uh, he was married to two women at the same time. But hey, at least he went to church. The man went to worship. He went once a year, so, you know, he, he, he really was devoted. Um, he went to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in uh, Shiloh, and also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there, and they become uh, infamous figures in the future. Whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, and to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, um, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Now, I just want to read, I just, I, you know, it's okay sometimes to laugh at the, not to laugh at the Bible, but to laugh at the story. I mean, it's kind of comical. Oh, well, Hannah, you know, Hannah, he loved her even though he replaced her. I mean, you want to kind of step into the story and say, what? Well, he loved her, so he gave her a double pour. He, he sacrificed twice in her honor because he, lo- he wanted her to know that, hey, it's not personal, honey. I just needed to have another wife. I mean, you want to think, what? I mean, try that, try that at home, right? I mean, it, that wouldn't fly in our world, would it? Again, that's how, how compromised their morals were. And here's the thing about when morals get compromised. When morals get compromised, people are deceived and they're delusional. Because all the while, Elkanah has convinced himself, there's nothing wrong with my little modern family. Meanwhile, one of his wives is making fun of his other wife. Hannah is literally, you know, at her wit's end because her replacement is antagonizing her. And Elkanah is completely delusional. He thinks, oh, I've just got this nice, happy family. And yeah, I'll just give some extra to God in honor of this woman because, hey, I, don't, I feel bad for her because, hey, she can't have kids. I guess it's God's fault. But hey, it's not my fault. Look at what I've done with my other wife. <laughs> Do y'all see kind of this, the, how, how mindless this scenario is? So the, the back, what we should read into this is their morals were so compromised, it was anything goes. And you know what happens in a world like this, and it's going on in our world today? People start convincing themselves that it's all okay. Elkanah's thinking, well, you know, I guess it's okay because I you know, needed to have kids. And, and I've given, you know, when I go to church, I give extra offering in honor of Hannah to let God know that I love her, even though I also replaced her. Oh, and they're sitting on the same pew, but I mean, literally, she's antagonizing her, making fun of her, and making her feel bad. And you would think, why would she even be there? Because she didn't have nowhere else to go. But do you see just how messy this is? All the while, it's because sin had been justified. And here's what happens when people, here's, here's why people justify sin. People justify sin because emotions and sentiment and intuition takes on. As in, we justify sin because it, 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 it we, you know, in our own minds, we think, well, you know, you don't know what I'm going through, and I just, you know, it, it makes sense to me, and, you know, it, it, just, it just feels right, and it sounds right, and yeah, I know this looks like a, it looks silly 2,000 years later, but Elkanah thought he was doing the right thing, and he was living the best life he could. But sin always gets justified when our emotions and intuition take over instead of God's word and God's spirit. God's word that never changes, God's spirit that is always sobering us up and making us know what's right and what's wrong. We don't consult with God because if we we did consult with God, we would hear what we don't want to hear. So I I just wanted to make it clear, there's no justifying Elkanah's behavior in this chapter. 
None at all. There's nobody that should raise their hand and say, well, that's just how it was in those days. Just like you're not going to say that's how it is in our day over different scenarios. Does that make sense? This is a mess. But this was the mess that Israel was in 3,000 years ago. Maybe it makes things a little more relatable, doesn't it? (laughs) We thought our families were a mess. Man, look at this, right? We often, we don't consult with God. We don't want to hear what God has to say. We tune him out in certain areas of our lives. We make a big deal about how we're doing this right, but we don't want to hear about the other thing because we know that that's not as it should be. Uh, So here, his family, they go to do their annual sacrifice, which is another whole message in and of itself. He was just going to worship because it was a routine. It was a box he had to check. Let me just give you a little bit of insight. If worship, if worship is more routine than passion, our sincerity is exposed. Listen, you, you say, well, you don't know his heart. I don't need to know his heart to know that he was not sincere in his worship. He was doing it as a routine. He was doing it as a box he was checking. And isn't that convicting in our modern world? It's always important and healthy that we pause from time to time and ask ourselves the question, why are we doing any of this? He was just doing it because it was the thing to do. It was the social thing to do. Because if we're just going through the motions and checking boxes, then by all means, God wants something better than that for us. Jesus talked to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, as in go back to where you were at the beginning because you've missed something since then. If a love and a passion and sincerity and a devotion isn't what drives our relationship with God, we need to search our souls and our hearts and rediscover why we believed in the first place. I promise you, God never intended you to get to the place where worship is routine and stale and dead. If that's where we are, it's not the church's fault. It's not the preacher's fault. It's not the worship leader's fault. It's our own fault for not keeping our hearts focused on God and walking with him on a daily basis. Elkanah went to worship once a year and had zero conviction about the mess he was in morally, personally. He didn't think he was doing anything wrong, which proves to me that his worship was insincere. Elkanah's generation was guilty of this, and we are too. When God and worship is reduced down to a pit stop in our otherwise engaged life, it should warn us that something is not as it should be. Elkanah was just passing by God once a year to make sure that they were on good terms, but he was too busy to put God first any other day of his life. You know how, you know how involved God wants to be in your life? Do you know how God wants to be involved in your life on a daily Step-by-step basis. David said this in Psalm 139. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. God wants to be involved in your sitting down and your rising up. He doesn't just want to see you at formal occasions of worship. God wants to be intimately involved in our lives. Every decision we make, he wants to be involved in those decisions. If we allow him and invite him, uh, he will take on a much greater role than just a routine in a ritual. Israel had, much, had, had far worse problems than cold hearts and immorality. Their entire understanding of worship was way far from where it was supposed to be. 
Speaking of which, we, we're going to see Hannah encounter the priest who literally insults her, but she doesn't let that keep her from talking to God. Verse 8, then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? I mean, talk about a piece of work. Oh, yeah, my, my second wife is berating you and making fun of you. But Hannah, aren't you just happy to be with me? I mean, can this guy stop talking? And thankfully, he does stop talking for a little while. So we don't got to deal with him anymore. Hannah, <laughs> reluctantly or, 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 or resiliently, doesn't let his ignorance kind of distract her. It says she arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the step by the doorpost at the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of, my life, of his life. And no razor shall come upon his head, which was a form of dedication. So it happened as she continued praying before the Lord, then Eli watched her mouth, that Eli watched her mouth. Now, if Elkanah wasn't enough of a, of, of a thorn in her side, the high priest that should have been there to help her and pray for her, intercede for her, says in verse 13, now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. If you haven't noticed already, Samuel wants us to know that Hannah didn't have a lot of things make helping her get to God in the story. If anything, the two people that should have been helping her get to God, her husband and her priest, they were working against her. Do you see what the writers want us to understand? That everything was pushing her away from God. That the world was setting her, was set up for her in a way that she was being pushed away. She, the devil was trying everything he could through the people that should have been there for her to push her away from God, to drive her. Can you imagine a, a, a version of this story where Hannah just runs away from God and runs away from faith because she, uh, she had every reason to, didn't she? Her husband was, was not supported, was not the right person he should be. She had a competitive wife in the, in the picture. The priest insults her. So that you, you can read this story, and it's not hard to imagine a version where the next verse says, and Hannah ran into the wilderness because she was despondent and full of despair. But that's not how it goes, isn't it? Verse 14, so Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put, put, put your wine away from you. I mean, sounds like he's the one that's drunk. I mean, she's at the altar praying. But Hannah answered and said, now, I mean, I don't know what you would say if I made some sort of accusation to you like that. Of course, I, I never would. I, I think I can say that in confidence. I don't, I don't know. If, if a preacher ever said to you what Eli said to you, I, I, you know, y'all are great people, but I don't know if you'd respond with as much grace as Hannah did in verse, six, verse 15. No, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I've, I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my spirit before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I've spoken until now. I mean, can you, can you imagine the composure she must have had? Here's a woman that, that knows she has no agency of her own. She has no, she has no, uh, uh, she has to stay married to her husband because of the way the world was. She has no freedom. She has no independence. She's stuck with that, with that, in that relationship and she can't even go to the temple without dealing with this man that's clearly not the priest he should be. So 
She says, verse 18, let the maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So she prays and Eli says, oh, I'm sorry. So, so I wanted to kind of dig into this as we close. Hannah, do you not see how Hannah is just standing out in her generation as a one-of-a-kind soul? She'd been mistreated and devalued. She had faced unfair circumstances and just absurd accusations. And yet, here's what she's doing. She allows the injustices she faced and the misfortunes she faced to funnel her towards God. The, the moral of the story isn't, it's no big deal that Hannah was mistreated and Hannah was replaced and that the priest was, was rude to her. That's not the moral of the story. Those things should never have happened, but that's the situation she was in. Hannah didn't allow those things to take her away from God. Let me ask you this. How many, thing, how many times in life have we allowed things that people have said or done to us get in between us and God all the time. We get mad, we get hurt, we get upset, and we, get, we allow people to get between us and God. Here's Hannah who had every reason to, get, to, to walk away. But what does she allow these unfortunate and unjust things do to her? She allows them to funnel her towards God. Think about that next time you want to quit church or get mad at church or get mad at God or, or get upset in a certain situation. And none of y'all have done that, I'm sure, but you know what I'm talking about. When people just say, well, I'm going to cross my arms. I'm, not, I'm just, I'm just not going to care anymore because somebody gets in our feelings or gets under our crawl. Hannah allows her injustices and her misfortune to funnel her towards God. It goes without saying, it wasn't right that she was treated the way she was. It wasn't fair. But Hannah shows us the best way to respond to a fallen world. Cling to our good God and hope in his rising kingdom. That's all we can do sometimes. We don't know the bigger picture. We don't know what might happen and what things are happening for and why things are happening. But we can trust that God is not unjust and God will not forsaken us, forsake us. And we can cling to him in the fog and the darkness and the chaos. Hannah could have complained or vented, but instead she prayed to God to bring something good out of her life, into her life. She didn't accept her lot in life. She prayed for God to change, her, change it for the better. You might say, well, you know, Hannah's being kind of passive. People say this to me sometimes when I'm preaching and they say, Justin, you know, you, you, you don't want us to take action the way the world does, but you want us to be passive. I'm not, I, I don't want you to be passive at all. I want you to go to God and pray and pray for God to show you how you should respond instead of just reacting the way the world reacts. Instead of just using your, rising up in your flesh. Prayer is not passive. Prayer is the greatest action we can take. Humble, kingdom-seeking prayers change the world. Humble, kingdom-seeking prayers make the biggest impact on the world that could ever be measured against. It's clear that God would never want someone to be in the place of abuse or harm. But Hannah, not knowing what else she could do, entrusted her situation to God and let him guide her in every step. And as the story goes, God gives her the son she prayed for. And I want to just think about Hannah's, Hannah's humility in all this. She remained in a situation that many would have said, that's not fair, that's not right. She was in a world that was working against her in every scenario. And yet she trusted that God would bring something good out of it. Now, again, I'm not saying we assume that Hannah wasn't being abused or harmed. And I think that goes without saying. But regardless, it wasn't good. It wasn't right. It wasn't fair. 
Yet God gave her the son that she prayed for. And she was set on keeping her word to him. So down in verse 24, the story goes, now when, they, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, three bulls and one ephah of flour and a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh and the child was young. They slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli and said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. Remember the woman that you said was drunk and you insulted me and then I still kept praying and asking you to intercede for me? Yeah, I'm that woman. Hey, I prayed for a son. And she said, Oh, Lord, uh, uh, as your soul lives, I'm the woman who stood here for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition which I have asked of him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He shall be lent to the Lord so they worshiped the Lord there and lent him is the Hebrew phrase Samuel and that's why she named him Samuel I want to again I want to appreciate Hannah's heart Hannah prayed for God to use her for his glory not simply console her. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to God and ask God to bail you out and ask God to change your circumstances. I, have no, I, would, not, I would not blame you if your situation was like Hannah or anywhere close to Hannah's. But can you imagine? Hannah doesn't go to God and say, God, change this, fix this, be this. Hannah just says, God, I don't know, I don't know what my, why my life is in the mess it's in and I don't know why the world's in the mess it's in. But God, if you could bring something good out of my life, that's all I really want right now. She prayed for God to use her to glorify him. We can learn so much from Hannah, can't we? In contrast to her husband, in contrast to the priest who were just seeking, who were just doing what they thought was right for them and act, you know, acting very uh, uh, um, abruptly and, and very impulsively, Hannah wanted to honor God with her life and leave a legacy for him. And that's why everybody remembers Hannah and Elkanah and Eli are footnotes in her story. In chapter 2, Hannah prays a prayer, a rejoicing, a prayer, really it's a praise, a song that she sings. And we'll look at it more in depth next week. But the moral of the, 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 the gist of the prayer is that God raises up the humble. The mighty fall, the arrogant stumble, but God raises up the humble. God reaches down for those that are fallen and those that are weak. And he raises them up to change the world. Don't you see where this is going? God reaches down to Hannah as Hannah seeks his will in a time when nobody else was, in a season when she was suffering at the expense of others' selfishness. And that is why her generation found hope. One person calling out for God to make a difference in their life. She could have set out her generation, but instead she prayed to make a difference. Would you have blamed her if she would have looked at her surroundings and said, the heck with this? Even so, come quickly. But that's not the attitude she took. It's from these humble beginnings that God begins to build a kingdom out of the ash heap of Israel, all because Hannah had a heart for God and prayed bold, powerful, beautiful prayers. God used her to leave a bold mark on her generation. So church, it falls back on us now to follow her path, to keep our eyes on the Lord, especially in these times. Prayer still changes things. Prayer, specifically humble, selfless prayers, change us in our worlds. How did Jesus teach us to pray? 
Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Yeah, the world's a mess. And yeah, my circumstances are not fair. And yeah, things are not as they should be. And I wish things were better. But that doesn't make you any less hallowed, God. That doesn't make you any less good, God. When we pray, we remember our world is broken, but our God is good. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what's next? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. My kingdom go. My will be put away. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. God, the world is bad, but you are good. My kingdom is not important. Your kingdom is everything to me. I want, to use, I want you to use my life to help build your kingdom. One prayer at a time, one day at a time, one person at a time. And it's up to us to pray prayers like Hannah. Use me for your glory. Yeah, life's not fair. Yeah, things aren't good. But you are God, and I'm leaning on your everlasting arm. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, add to your glory through my life. May your kingdom rise up through my life. So when we fall on our face humbly and we invite him to work in our lives, we can change the world. If you want proof, just ask Samuel. Because as Samuel begins to tell us his story, how does he start his story out? Let me tell you about a time when there was a very, very, very corrupt world with a very, very, very messed up family and a woman who had everything against her called upon the name of the Lord and asked for God to use her for something great. And Samuel would tell us, I'm the something great that she prayed for and that God gave to the world. But there would be no Samuel if there wasn't first a Hannah who prayed bold, beautiful, humble prayers. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for what is, of, what is, without saying, a humbling story of a young woman who had everything against her and had a world that was such a mess around her, yet she clung to the good God above her. And it's from that story that you begin to change the world and you begin to make a difference through her life and again through Samuel's life and then eventually through the rest of the nation. God, help us to be inspired by this story, to not give up when our world looks bad, to not grow weary when our world looks corrupt, to not get discouraged and get disheartened when the world isn't responding to you. Because from the messiest of families and from the most corrupt of situations, you brought out a woman with bold, powerful prayers, and you brought the nation a deliverer in the man of Samuel. Lord, help us to have a heart like Hannah. Help us to be humble and to be selfless like Hannah. Help us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Use our lives for your glory. Make a difference through my life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.